First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes what? Welcome to Then Comes What, a monthly show where we open up everything you wanted to know and some things you didn't about love, sex, marriage, children, manhood, womanhood, and more. My name is Nathan Alverson. I'm your humble and obedient host. I am joined by Pastor Jacob Mensel. What's up? And, of course, we have Pastor Tim Bailey. Every week, we are going to tackle one question. And most of these questions, we hope over time, will be questions asked by you, the audience members. You can email us at tcw at warhornmedia.com. But let's get right into it with Tim. Tim, I'm just going to drop this question on you and I'm going to see what happens. How do you have faith for a good marriage given past sin? Well... I think the first thing people are going to think when you ask that question is about sexual sin, so let's start there. Mm -hmm. Sexual sin is the hardest sin for us to confess. Sexual sin by God has been privileged to have great shame attached to it, to help us to fight it, and it's absolutely mortifying. it, it, It makes you vomit. To have to think about your capabilities for being a sinner sexually after you get married, that's one thing that is not often talked about, okay? Yeah. And I think one of the things as far as sexual sin is concerned that was helpful to Mary Lee and me is that our wedding started in sin because she was pregnant. The day before, the afternoon before the wedding, which was at her parents' house, I was called to my father-in-law in the backyard, and he confronted me about what I had done to his daughter. Now, people listening can't even imagine that day because they're horrified at the construct what I had done to his daughter as if women are not moral agents and she wasn't a party to it and that whole bunk. Right. Well, the fact is a man who is trusted by the father of the woman that he wants to marry, if he beds that woman, he has harmed her father and has to account for it to him. And it's not that he doesn't have to account to her brothers and sisters and to her mother. It's not that he doesn't have to account to his own parents for his lust and his sin. And so I asked his forgiveness. Was he like angry or was it like he was doing the thing that he knew he needed to do? Or was, was, it, was it like a formality or was it a <laughs> no, something it was, that just came out of the depths of his soul? He had to do this or? A, it wasn't a formality. Probably That's a rude way to ask. Was it a formality? Well, I guess, I guess, with a lot of men, it would be. But, yeah. but you have to understand that my father-in-law loved me and had for years. I'd lived in their home. When Mary Lee was off at college and I was working for service master and for the railroad, I had lived in their home part of that time, and I loved her mother and her father. And I was largely a part of the family by that time. And so this was no boyfriend and shotgun wedding and father-in-law making them get married. First of all, you have to remember at that time what almost all Christian couples that I knew were doing, were they were petting, and if they got pregnant, I'm sure that they were having abortions. And so in one sense, our parents, both mine and Mary Lee's, were thankful to God that we were not inclined to hide our sin by having an abortion. But to excuse my lust and my taking advantage of Mary Lee, which, by the way, if anybody knew the circumstances, they'd probably laugh at that description of it because Uh, Let me tell you, Mary Lee knew precisely what she wanted in terms of sexual intimacy. Mm -hmm. And so why do I phrase it as my taking advantage of her? Well, 
it was my obligation to honor God in our relationship, regardless of whether or not Mary Lee was zealous to protect her virtue, okay? So anyhow, my point in this was simply to say that as marriage goes on, the first thing that hit us was that we had to completely change our ways. You got to change your evil ways, baby. And one of my ways was I was glib, I was facile of tongue, I was good-looking, long hair, earring, bright. And I realized that I was a flirt. And that if I did that after we got married, I was going to destroy my marriage. So there's a lot of repentance at the beginning of marriage, a ton of it. Would I have said you were a flirt or was it something? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I talked to women about their feelings. And of course, I would talk. It's interesting. I would talk to women who weren't good looking as often as good looking women about their feelings. But I mean, any man that talks about feelings and works hard and has good shoulders and mm-hmm. i mean that's a catch right you know and i realized if i did that after marriage that i would commit adultery i knew i had to change and so that's one thing about confessing sin in marriage is that from the very beginning mary lee and i knew that we were not just capable of but had committed very serious sexual sin and everybody at the wedding knew it and so that in one sense, it's bad because then you have the fruit of that sexual sin in your marriage. And I, I won't go into that because I think I'm already off the topic. But on another sense, it's good because you both look at each other without stars in your eyes. So many women today, if they hear that their husband has looked at pornography, their world is destroyed. So it's <laughs> yeah. obvious that they have never confronted and their father has never told them what a man actually is. Now, I'm not excusing pornography, but I'm saying Mary Lee never had illusions. illusions. Yeah, I was about trying to explain to my uh, fiancés helping out with the youth group now, and I was just suggesting. Who's that? The the incandescent Meredith. The incandescent Meredith. Yes, sir. Well, I like her. I like her too. I can't wait for you two to be married. I love her. Um, (laughs) She. I, I was just making some broad comments about what she might think was a smart thing to wear helping out with youth group uh-huh. she's not she's no dummy and she's no stranger to the fact that the world is a sinful place but she was shocked to have to even a little bit enter into the mind of a 13 year old boy or 14 year old boy and think about what might be going on there mm. and it's obvious when you look at what christian women write on social media and you look at how they live that most of them have never had a dad explain to them the intense desire for intimacy that comes at, at puberty with a man. I know women would say they have the same thing. And and I'm not going to get, I'm not going to go physician or psychologist on you here, but it's not the same thing. Right. Yep. And every man nope. knows it. And fathers have to explain to their wives that they will be the standard for modesty with their daughters. And if if a mother fights that and thinks that people should be able to dress the way they want without regard for the seventh commandment, the father has to take authority over that. So go back to your original question. Sexual sin is hard to talk about. I think there's much more sexual sin in marriages than any of us want to admit. I think many people get caught in fantasizing about somebody other than their husband or their wife. I think women especially are tempted to watch soaps or read gothic romance or look at verbal pornography on the internet and have fantasies about somebody other than their husband, and that's adultery. I think men obviously are tempted by the same thing, although generally will be more visual, but you know, 30 to 40% of pornography on the internet is used by women now. 
even worse sin in the marriage bed is going on that I, I would prefer not to go into. So the shame is awful. And both men and women need to be accepting and forgiving of sins. Well, no, <laughs> I said accepting. They need to be accepting of confessions without going ape bat mm -hmm. when it comes up. Or bad ape? I'm bad not, ape. I'm not <laughs> I sure. think it's bad ape, yeah. <laughs> I think it's bad ape. <laughs> not going ape. <laughs> we just coined a new euphemism <laughs> first we'll, episode of the show. We call the podcast <laughs> Ape Bat. <laughs> ape Bat with Tim Bailey. <laughs> um, I was thinking about now, what you were saying earlier about uh, having to talk to Meredith and that sort of thing. As, when I was in college ministry, and I still have this from time to time, you get these women, and a lot of sexual sin in Christian relationships begins with a woman who's naive, who really wants emotional and physical intimacy, just wants to draw lines mm -hmm. <laughs> way closer to... to. She wants to cuddle. Mm -hmm. She wants to cuddle, and she doesn't understand what that does to a man. And she gets angry and offended when a man tries to draw hard lines, and you just have to say to women <laughs> over and over and over I have, again... I have experienced... When this man <laughs> tries to protect you from himself... You accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I have experience with that. I remember sitting at our old home in the living room with Lucas, who's now uh, one of the pastors here, and Hannah. And Hannah was <laughs> sweet, innocent. And you probably remember her at this time, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I see her taking, I don't remember whether it was her arm or her leg, and touching Lucas's thigh halfway from his knee up. Yep. And I'm sitting there looking at that, and I go sort of ape bat. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't do anything right then, which I thought was very good of me. Mm -hmm. Nice job. But as soon as yep. that little seance was <laughs> over, I told Hannah that she was never to touch Lucas anywhere near there. Yeah. And I don't think women get this. I think when you say this, women think, well, you're a pervert. <laughs> yeah, that like, is what they think. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, so, so bringing us back to the original question then, nobody goes into marriage without huge Sins. baggage of, 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 of sexual sin and other yeah, sin. But yeah, yeah. So how do you have faith for that? No, nobody is going to go in. I mean, th thinking about things like masturbation and just, just what's normal, like, Nobody's going to go into marriage not having seen lots of pornography, not having seen lots of sex scenes in movies. You know, the very best of us are going to be completely corrupt. Well, there will be many people listening to this that will say that you have a jaded view of innocence and purity. Certainly, many people in the conservative reformed homeschooling community. Well, I was in the conservative homeschooling reformed community, and I didn't really find a lot of innocence there. Yeah, but the parents convince themselves that they've protected their children, okay? And I just want to warn them, if they're listening, that they will be crying someday, and they will remember the warning we're giving them. Incest is a very serious issue in large families that have recovered the blessing of fruitfulness, but they're not vigilant to protect their children from each other. And listen, I've had to go and pick up the pieces for this in, in, in other churches, and there have also been very serious sins in this church, so I want to warn them not to cast off your statement that by the time people get married, they've been exposed to... And, you know, if you just think through Scripture, for heaven's sakes, why will people not take seriously the Word of God? 
Why does the word of God have incest? Again and again, why does it have adultery? Why does it have warnings against the lusts of the flesh? Why does the Apostle Paul give these warnings? Is it because his letters are evangelistic tracts? No, they're to the church. And so even if people aren't prepared to believe what you just said, Nate, about the prevalence of sexual impurity today, look at the Bible. Mm -hmm. I mean, for heaven's sakes. So yes, we go into marriage sexual sinners, just like we find in Scripture. And we have to go into marriage having faith in God's forgiveness and in his cleansing. And always for me, it was such a precious statement, a couple of them. One of them is, at the beginning of Philippians, I'm convinced that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This doesn't just apply to sexual sins, because many of the sins that assault marriage and produce despair and possible separation and divorce in a marriage are not sexual sins, actually. And many sexual sins don't come out of sexual sin as much as they come out of relational sin. So it's not just sexual sin, but you will sin against incandescent Meredith again and again and again and again and again. Some of the sins you commit against her, you will commit again and again. And if you're godly, when you commit those sins against Meredith, you will ask her forgiveness again and again and again and again. And you will then become like I was a couple of years into marriage where I had to apologize again to Mary Lee. I don't remember the particular sin. I had enough of them that I could take a guess at three or four that I probably committed and ask her forgiveness for again and again. I finally said to her lover, I know I'm asking you to forgive me again for a sin that I have committed against you time after time. And it was probably something like, my guess is it was my method of arguing with her, that I would demean her, you know, that I would call into question her intelligence in the way that I argued with her or something like that. And if I did it, she would cry. And the minute she cried, I would immediately repent because, oh, come on. Mary Lee cries, and I'm going to be a hard bat. Ape bat. Ape bat. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I say, please forgive me, sweetie. And then I had to begin to say occasionally, lover, I know that you're weary of me committing the same sin over and over again. And I can't promise you I won't do it again, but I can tell you that he that began a good work in me will bring it to completion. You have faith that God will change me. And I think that's another answer to your question. How do you have faith to confess your sins to your spouse? Because you have faith in God. And he has said that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that's glorious in itself. Then it says, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you guys know that I have a saying that I love to remind people about here, and that is that a Christian desires three things with regard to sin. Justification, that it does not condemn, that the sin doesn't condemn me. Sanctification, that it does not reign, R-E-I-G-N, that it doesn't rule constantly my what? Mm. rule my life. Yeah, rule my life. And glorification, that it will not be. And that's heaven. That's when we die when we're released from this uh, body of death. And so you ask how to deal with asking forgiveness. Forgiveness is the currency. Repentance and forgiveness are the currency with God, any relationship with God, and they're the currency for any relationship between parents and children and any relationship between a man and a woman and husband and wife. 
you know, as you talk, what I'm thinking is what I've realized about myself since I've been dating and engaged and everything is that by God's grace, I do have faith for sanctification through marriage. What I don't have is patience. I really, really, really want to argue it all out and figure it all out. And I don't want to go to bed. We, we would have these phone conversations where we'd stay up till three in the morning and everything, our brains would turn to mush and it would be like, I will not let you hang up the phone until we get this thing hammered out. It's hard for me to have faith. Like if we come back to this, if, if we're not immediately sanctified through the work that we're doing right now, and we have to talk about again, and I have to forgive you again, and you have to forgive me again, it's hard for me to have the patience to see God work over the long haul. One of the ways that marriage becomes easier and better is that we stop being that way that you just described. And a lot of that comes with just the growing trust that you have in each other as you work through things over time, that she knows that I'm for her. We've I know that she's for me. Been here before. We've so, been here yeah. before. We've worked through things together. We can put this down. We can pick it up later because we trust that we're for each other at the end of the day because we're for God. As that trust grows and builds over time, it does become easier to put those kinds of things down. And I suspect, knowing you and knowing incandescent Meredith, mm-hmm. that both of you really are not doing the work you think you're doing at those times. Mm-hmm. I suspect that what you're really doing is what Jake just said. You're actually building capital of trust in your being for each other and not just selfish, but more that you're building capital in your ability to know when to lead and make a decision and when to be mutual. And that's a very, very important thing to study and grow in your ability to do as husband and wife. It's very difficult for a wife to know when to submit and when not to submit. And there are places where a wife should not submit. She should not submit to her husband's sexual sin because she has authority over his body, Paul says in Corinthians. She also should not submit when her husband reacts in anger and slaps or hits his children. All hitting should be spanking, and all spanking should be very carefully controlled. His spanking should never release his anger. There are things that a wife has to say no. I think one of the things that makes planning weddings so difficult is that you're processing so many relational issues. And so you think that what you're fighting over is the flowers. Trust me, it has nothing to do with the flowers. (laughs) Absolutely. It has to do with her mother, your mother, her father, or the absence thereof, your father, or the absence, the pastor's interface with you. It has to do with your tastes. You might be a man who has strong tastes in flowers. I do, okay? Mary Lee really doesn't. You know, you might be thinking, oh, really, I shouldn't be pushy on this, but then she doesn't have any taste in flowers, and you do. And so you have to have, like you say, you have to have patience to do this work. And the work probably doesn't have as much to do with the flowers as it does finding your place in the, in the relationship that's proper. Now, one other thing. You bring this up and... One of the things I want to tell you right now before you're married is an awful lot of the things you think are so important that you make a decision on actually don't matter at all. In other words, the things that you think if you put off will... What are the... Rot or... Rot, yeah, or will... Fester. Fester, yeah. Fester, yeah. Yeah, actually won't. Do you know, they've done a study to find out the difference between children who are able to postpone gratification and children who aren't. Marshmallow test? Huh? The marshmallow test? Yeah, I don't know if it's marshmallow, but they set, and they say, if you do such and such, 
Yeah, if you go it's, ahead, describe it's it. famous Stanford marshmallow test. They put a marshmallow in front of kids like five years old, four years old, and say, "Okay, if you wait till I come back, I will give you two marshmallows. You can eat the marshmallow in front of you, but if you wait fifteen minutes or ten minutes until I come back, you can have two marshmallows." And so the results of the study are the kids that were able to delay gratification at five years old or however old it was. It's got to be test. a predictor of success, right? It's a, it's a huge indicator of success mm-hmm. in life, stability, and relationships, and everything else. And the kids that were not capable of that were, or were unwilling to delay gratification off the rails. And so the question is, how did they delay gratification? Remember that? They, they, it was self-talk, wasn't it? Self-talk. and They were um, telling themselves. They were talking to themselves well, about it. And what they were doing was, how do you say it? They were leading themselves off into other places to be distracted yeah they they were distracting themselves they were distracting themselves Mm. yeah and that is a key skill in marriage that you have the ability because look when you're fighting you know don't let the sun go down on your ass but when you're fighting at midnight don't keep fighting distract yourselves and so you got to know when to hold them when to fold them when to walk away and when to run And that's another thing you're learning right now, but you have to know it in marriage. And one of the stories that my wife often tells in marriage counseling is how my father and mother would always fight when he was going away on a trip because he was gone constantly and it was such a source of tension in our home. And he had white shirts and underwear, boxers that he wanted washed and starched and ironed for his trips. And my mother was, in some things, uh, excuse me for saying, but a harebrained. You know, she, she, if she'd misplace her keys, her purse. And so she never had that stuff done when dad was getting ready to pack. And my father was fastidious. And they would fight over it and fight over it and fight. And then finally, my father started taking them to the dry cleaner and having them wandered and starched there. <laughs> and, 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 and Jake, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Absolutely. Talk about that. Well, it's just, there's so many things like that, that, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say beyond there is a lot of wisdom in that, but you just remove, you remove it from the equation, right? You just decide this is a constant point of tension. It doesn't actually have to be this way. She can't do it. I can't get what I, we're just going to outsource it. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we're going to take, we're going to buy a dishwasher. And that's important. Very, very important because my recollection about my life is that I have always felt that the only true sanctification comes from brute faith and force. <laughs> and if I'm not exercising brute faith and force over myself in self-discipline, then it's not really a growth in holiness. And then when I moved from Boston, so I'd lived in Madison, it was horrendous trying to keep my eyes pure in Madison. <laughs> you know, you walk through Library Mall and walk on Bascom Hill in the springtime at UW-Madison. Then in Boston, it was also a problem when I was in seminary. It was a problem in Boulder. (laughs) You know, Boulder and Madison were not fun places to be a newly married man. By God's grace, I was was protected. But then I moved to Partyville, Wisconsin, a town of 1,500, and there were pretty women. But the interesting thing was, all of a sudden, I didn't have nearly the problem with sexual immorality that I had had in these other places. And after a couple of years, I noticed it and I thought to myself, what on earth is going on here? And then I realized that what was going on was, it's a town of 1500. And so 
nobody is anonymous. You know, there's no anonymous flesh in Partyville. It belongs to that father, that husband, that grandfather, or it's in your church, or it's in your youth group. And so God placed me in a place where there was absolutely no way for me to allow my eyes to sin without feeling terrible shame. And then I was disappointed because I thought I'd grown in godliness, and I thought, well, that's not growth in godliness. But then I thought, so God in his kindness puts me in a place where I don't have temptations with my eyes. And I'm going to say that's not godliness and that's not sanctification. Mm. And so I don't know if that story is helpful. But oh, yeah. I think, it's, I think people need to learn to be a lot more pragmatic in, when they, in the way they think about godliness and the, the way they think about God's kindness in their lives. It's a way to be too spiritual about that sort of thing. Paul tells Timothy, flee sexual immorality. And Joseph did. And Joseph did. And right. so what? Like, unplug the cable. Mm-hmm. Right, move to a place where it's cold. Don't keep the food around. That, that isn't to be a glutton. Don't keep the money around if you're greedy. Exactly. Well, that's... be poor. Don't work. Too <laughs> <laughs> far. Well, but with, uh, accepting the thing that you just said, th- those are acts of actual faith, right? Like people want to say, "Oh, that's not faith. That's not godliness. That's not sanctification," because it's not like evidence of my heart's ability to resist the temptation. Yes, it is. You, you removed the source of temptation. You ran. That, or God the, removed it for you. Or God you. removed it for yeah. you. That's God's kindness to you. Yeah. I think one of the most, probably top 10 most helpful things anyone ever said to me, Pastor Baker, one of the other pastors here when I was a young man, said, pray for five minutes every day, Nathan, because I wasn't, I wasn't praying. And I had set myself these lofty goals. And I remember I had a roommate that was, I'm going to give a tenth of my time to God because that's the tithe. So I'm going to find out how many hours it would take to give a tenth of my time. I was really oppressed by wanting to do something like that. And I wasn't able to do it. And he said, do it for five minutes. Set a timer if you need to. Probably if you can make yourself do that, you'll do more. And it was one of the most helpful things because it just made it simple. And baby made it, steps. It made it manageable. It gave yeah. me a baby step. It mm-hmm. gave me a real step of faith I could take that mm-hmm. worked. Not, not to be hyperbolic. It was life-changing. It was yeah. like, and, it, and it's filtered into all of my life. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I just allow myself to not feel like I need to be too spiritual, and I know there's a way to, to deny the spiritual power, but if I allow myself to just be very practical and I dare say pragmatic in the way that I look at these things, it, it can be really helpful. Yeah. Can I interject a comment here? Yeah. Listening to you, I want to say to the people listening that you have to come into these conversations with some elemental trust in our hearts and our commitments and knowing that this church, which is substantial in size, is very, very healthy and loving and tender, lots of children, very sweet relationships between the pastors and the children and their mothers, which could not exist if we were covering up sexual abuse or abuse of any way. Uh, We don't make decisions in this church about how families do this or that. So I want to encourage people, because when you have conversations that are as intimate as these we're having are, it's very easy for people to take something that's said and to hear it wrong, intentionally or unintentionally, and to throw out everything that's being said. And so there has to be an assumption that this church supports us for this work because we have something worth saying, and the church appreciates it and wants other people to hear it. And so I'm just pleading with people listening 
don't take a one-off comment that we make and just write us off because of that. Get, go, work with us, you know, work with us and, and trust that what we, we mean is kindness and love and benevolence and is not because we got up out on the wrong side of the bed or <laughs> have dyspepsia or, or are s- cynical, okay? Mm-hmm. I just want to say that because some of the things that we're seeing here are so edgy, and they're the kind of things that you only say when you're alone with a couple and your wife in mm-hmm. marriage counseling. Mm-hmm. And so I want to caution people to... You know, in Proverbs, it says, my son, give me your heart. And that's what I'm saying to people, sons and daughters listening. Give us your heart. Let us, let us work with you and don't look for reasons to condemn us, please. Absolutely. Pray for us. What if, I, what if I tried to take the original question in a different direction? Yeah, please. Because the question was... How do I have faith for my for, marriage, for given my, my sin? Given, given my, my sin. Yeah. What, if, what if we tweaked it and come at it from the direction of how do I have faith for my marriage given uh, sins committed against me? By my spouse or by others? By others. What I what I mean is when I say that immediately goes to abuse and sexual Parents, abuse. Sure. But but let me let me take it personal for a minute. For me, having faith coming from a broken home, my parents divorced when I was five, six years old. A- adultery was a part of that. For me, having faith for simply having a family that was going to last, that wasn't gonna fall apart, that w- wasn't going to end in infidelity was a huge, huge issue for me, a huge thing that I had to wrestle through and something that at various stages of, a, of my marriage has popped up again and again. So for example, when my oldest son was approaching his fifth birthday, I, d- I didn't connect it immediately, but as we got closer and closer, I started having the worst nightmares, the most real visceral dreams set in the house that we lived in when my parents went through the divorce. My dad there, but my wife and I are living there, but she's leaving, but, you know, just all these awful things. Nightmares. Nightmares, just absolute nightmares. Mm -hmm. And waking up feeling like they were real, feeling like it had happened, feeling like what had passed between me and my wife was more real than the reality, waking up sobbing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just started to connect it as I thought about it and processed it to the fact that my oldest son is hitting the mm-hmm. age that I was, and I don't know what comes next. I don't know <laughs> what life mm-hmm. looks like in a whole intact family beyond this point. And the sense of overwhelming, uh, the overwhelming sense of inevitability that this is going to fall to pieces hung over me hard. So much so that you, you, know, you have these moments of, I can't deal with this tension. You know, let's just go ahead and get this over with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, when I alluded like, to last, when I alluded a few minutes ago to not having patience, what I've come to realize is that so much of that is this absolute abyss of panic I will fall into when mm-hmm, I see myself mm-hmm. being my dad, absolutely, or when I see her being her mom. Yep, and it's just like, oh no, we can't do this. <laughs> I thought people had put good things into me, and I was ready for this, but actually, lurking within me is this sinner, and he looks exactly like my dad. This godless fatalism starts to take it's spooky. over, right? It's yeah. spooky. You know, the fact is we will grow up to be our dads. Yep. It's very interesting for me to listen to you talk, though, because, oh, my goodness. Uh, my entire life has been my attempt to be my father. And so it's the very opposite of you. And I feel like such a failure because I have not been my father. I have not had his gracefulness 
in conflict the way he had it, although he also, he also did avoid conflict. And I'm probably a little bit better than him in that because I had some of my mother, <laughs> a good bit of my mother. And so I don't know. It's, it's uh, you know, let me say something about this issue of us coming into marriage with pain and with people who done us wrong. Pretty much everybody coming into a marriage been done wrong. And I know this because I know myself, I know my wife, I know our children, I know this church, I know her souls, I know her children, I know her parents, I know the grandparents, I know the lives of the people of this church because I'm a shepherd. Sunday mornings when I'm preaching, no matter what the subject is, I'm looking because I look at the congregation as I preach and I'm looking and actually seeing the interface between this specific thing I'm saying at this time and that woman, and that man, and that child, and that woman, and that man. And so, a lot of them done wrong, they themselves done wrong, and a lot of them been done wrong. And I would put the number of men who grow to adulthood having been beaten or sexually molested at well over 50%. And so, we have all these, you know, with race woke, we've got me too, we got all this crap. And I'm not mincing my words when I talk about this. And it is appalling. And it's appalling because of its hypocrisy. There is such a scale of moral authority that is so hypocritical in, in, in how people have suffered. Listen, I think that the most squelched voices in Western culture today are boys who have been sexually and physically molested and abused when they were growing up. When my father was leading a Bible study at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, and this would have been, he would have told me this back in the 70s. It may even have been the 60s, but he reiterated it decades later before he died in 1985. My father said to me, he was leading a Bible study at 10th Pres when he was uh, editing his magazine and running the Eastern Seaboard for InterVarsity. He said one day he asked the men, which my recollection is there were 12, 15 men in the Bible say, so yes, and how many of them had been abused when they were children, sexually? And he said, yeah, it was either six or eight of the men. And this was back in the 50s, okay? It was half. And then he asked how it had happened to them. And the majority of them, it had happened with a choir director or music director when they were children. Now, it's anecdotal, but why did my dad tell me that? Well, he told me that because... The abuse of children is not limited to Roman Catholic Church. It's not limited to sovereign grace. It's not limited to the Southern Baptists. It's not limited to the PCA. I don't care what denomination it is. I don't care what their doctrinal commitments are. Men are sinful. Women are sinful. Women abuse their little babies. And I'm sitting here nodding my head as you look at me. Trust me. The things Mary Lee and I deal with, it's unbelievable. And we're the ones that carry the pain so other people don't have to know about it. But you, you, know, you ask me about people that go into marriage with wounds. There is nobody. All there are are people whose wounds are known and people whose wounds are unknown. Mm -hmm. And when you add in, besides physical and sexual abuse, when you add in the death of siblings as they grow up, when you add in people that have severe psychological and physical deformities when they go into marriage. When you add in growing up in poverty so that there's a graspingness 
in a young man because his father never provided for him. When you add in dyslexia, when you add in, listen, this world, they used to say at the grave, in the midst of life, we live in death. And the fact is, everybody that goes into marriage has suffering, that they have to have faith that God is going to heal and partly heal through marriage. Okay, yeah. so can I tell a story or is this too much of a monologue? No, please do. <laughs> okay. I've been warned not to, to monologue or what's the verb? I didn't warn you not to monologue. I no, just said no, it no. won't be a monologue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're well. going to try to keep it as conversational as possible. But part of but conversation is... When you're in a room with Tim Bailey, it's... Is- Listening to Tim. Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. So, we would love to hear your story. Well, this story is just so precious to me. The stories are going to be the bread and butter of the show. Well, so, so people know, I assume people listening and you guys know that growing up, when I was three or four, my, my brother got leukemia and it was devastating, absolutely devastating. And then a couple years later, another brother was born who had cystic fibrosis, and he died within three weeks. Uh, C. Everett Coop, Surgeon General, past Surgeon General, was our family doctor in these things. He operated on him. He was trying to perfect a procedure for CF patients when they were first born. It failed with him, and he died. And then I had two more brothers who were born, and one of them had hemophilia, and the other had cystic fibrosis. And my oldest brother had cystic fibrosis. So I was the only boy that had nothing except colorblindness. And I don't, I'm kind of happy to have escaped with colorblindness. I, I think that's an asset, not a debit. <laughs> you know. Well, then my father quit InterVarsity and uh, he'd been there 25 years, no pension, dirt poor. And he'd been the first staff worker in New England. So it was a pretty, pretty bitter time in, in our lives. My mother sold World Book. My dad made hoagies and we sold them at school until the Pennsylvania Department of Health shut us down. They were the best hoagies in the world. And so my father tried to make it speaking and writing. He wrote the Gospel Blimp, and that sold pretty well. He went out speaking, but nobody would ever give him any honoraria. They'd barely cover his expenses. So after two years, he had the indignity of having to go to his younger sister, a secretary in New York City, and borrow some money so that we could live. Then he got a job at David C. Cook Publishing, a Sunday school publisher out in the Midwest. And he went out, and he only came home once a month. And so he was gone even more. And finally, we were going to move out there. Well, Blue Church and and Delray County Christian School, our parents had been the very, at the cornerstones of these these communities. Dad and Mud had helped start Delray County, and Dad had filled in as the pastor when our pastor, Cressy, at Blue Church had a heart attack. Dad took over pastoring for him and gave that as a gift. And so our moving was desperately sad and hard because we were living, leaving everybody that loved us and had gone through these terrible sufferings. So we were due to leave right after celebrating Christmas. And so the moving van was packed. We celebrated Christmas and then we were moving out to Illinois to Bartlett. Then that night, dad had not even come home for Christmas because of the expense and, and the weight of his work at David C. Cook as managing editor. And so my brother and sister went out sledding. My brother fell off the sled. He started hemorrhaging. He had hemophilia. He was at Swarthmore, a national merit scholar. Godway, my father's pride and joy. And two weeks later, he died. And we lived with the Kents at that time, Russ and Evie Kent. Her dad was General Harrison. 
And they lovingly let us stay in their house and eat with them as we waited for Joe, hoping that he would get better, but he died. And he died from malpractice. And C. Everett Coop tried to get my dad to take the hospital to court because C. Everett Chick had actually consulted with them, and they did the opposite of what he told them to do. I won't go into the details. And I think one of my dad's proudest things is that he never sued them and paid the bill. Anyhow, I, I bring all this up because shortly after we got married and moved to Madison, we were in church on a Sunday morning, and the congregation sang, Savior like a shepherd lead us. And all of a sudden, I just completely, utterly lost it. And I just couldn't, I couldn't stop crying. And of course, nobody had any idea what was going on with me. So we went home and Mary Lee, she sat on the bed with me and I just cried. And I didn't know what was going on. I could not figure it out. And then I realized that I had never been able to grieve the loss of Joe. And Joe was as much a dad to me as my father was, actually. You know, Joe is the one that when I came home with my report card, he would tell me that I had to do better, you know, because dad was gone. But my parents' pain of losing this third child and the oldest son and a prince of a man was such agony. And then my sister went off to U of I down in Champaign, Urbana. And my mother and dad really went into a tough time in their marriage because of their grief. All of a sudden, here was this woman who loved me sitting next to me on our bed. And I realized that I, that I didn't remember ever singing that song since we sang it at the grave of Joe. And that was the last contact we had with anybody in Philadelphia. You know, we sang that at the grave that we got in the car. And we drove to Illinois. And so here we sing it right after I get married. And I'm, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with the sadness of my brother's death and of the marriage at that time, of leaving all our friends behind. And, and this is the good part of the story. And this is the reason I'm telling it. And there I have a woman who has vowed till death with me. And so I'm safe. And so I can do the work of grieving. And we all take these wounds into our marriage. And what a precious thing to be given a husband or a wife who has not perfect, but such sweet empathy and sympathy for us, who will not leave us or forsake us, just like God. And you might say, well, why didn't you grieve with God? He's a friend that sticks closer than any brother. And, you know, I don't know. I think God gave us spouses, husbands, and wives, so that we are safe to grieve. And that's the final thing I would say about this whole question of taking wounds into marriage. This is your wife. This is your husband. Let him bear your grief. I have a really similar story of my own. I won't tell it because it'll sound trite, <laughs> given the context, but went to a place where I expected to have fun, suddenly was overwhelmed with grief over my parents' divorce and just melted into a sobbing mess. Just went out and sat in the truck with Amanda, and she was so sweet. She just held my hand and just processing it all again in a different way through uncontrollable sobbing. But That's yeah. the work of grief. That's what it was. That's what it's it was. And it was mission to God to sob. And yeah. And it's acknowledging the pain. And, and having her there, I think, made it safe in a way that oh. it hadn't been. And sweet. That's why you get married. 
<laughs> you don't go into marriage trying to hide your pain. You go into marriage so that there's somebody whose pain you can bear and someone who will help you bear your own. Yeah. That seems like a good end to that question. It was a Superman movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Explain it. Well, when I was a kid, all of my my sharpest childhood memories are from when my parents were together. I remember the apartment they had when I was two years old. I remember being in the playpen. I remember the first house they had. I can rearrange the furniture for you. I remember details of so many things. And one of the things that I remember is just watching the Superman movies with my dad, getting into his closet and getting out his red cowboy boots and getting up on the couch and being Superman. And my dad was Superman. He was a, he was a cop and he was, you know, he was out there fighting the bad guys. And anyhow, this really dorky Superman movie came out in theaters years later, Superman Returns. Not a good movie, by the way. Yeah, it's a bad movie, but it was a sequel to all of those original Superman movies that I loved watching with my dad as a kid. And I, I will start crying like an idiot here in a second, but the whole premise is he left and was gone for 20 years. Superman left in the movie. Superman yeah. in the movie left and he came back and it was, who needs Superman? <laughs> and then there's a moment where he's back and he's like doing Superman things and are people gonna care? And then he has a sacrificial moment where he dies or maybe dies. And it was just a way to process the fact that when my parents divorced, Superman died. Yeah. And Superman dies for everybody. At some point you realize that Superman's actually Clark Kent. And the question is, are you going to love Clark Kent as your dad? Are you gonna love him? Are you gonna forgive him? And it, for most people that happens a little later than five years old, but it happened when I was five. And so I was just, consumed with all of my grief over my parents' divorce, watching that stupid movie. I just lost it. You know, you describe that and you say it will sound trite. And I, I, I guess you compare Superman Returns. Savior like a shepherd leader. You're telling this story <laughs> and I'm like, I, ha I know that yeah, moment. Yeah, I know that exact yeah. moment. Yeah. But you have this like moment in church and worship know, and response with it being a hymn. And I'm like, I was at the movie theater you, yeah, watching this Brian Singer film. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> 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 then Comes What was produced by Nathan Alverson and executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alverson. As I said, you can send your questions to tcw at warhornmedia.com. Uh -huh.